Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm a professor of psychology, epidemiology, and public health at Yale University, where I also direct the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. And it has been our tradition to have guests who have come to the Rudd Center to give lectures to come and do webcasts, and that's why we're here today. I urge you to visit the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org to uh, view the other webcasts that we have, or listen to them, rather, uh, because they're really a terrific group of uh, recordings. Today, I'm especially delighted to welcome Sandra Sherman and Tracy Yang from the Philadelphia Food Trust. Um, they'll describe the history and the programs of the Food Trust, but I know it's one of the most uh, vibrant and innovative programs of its type anywhere in the country. Um, it, it is a program that's had enormous influence, not only on, on, on Philadelphia, the citizens of Philadelphia, but has served as a model for other cities around the country. And I hear in my travels, people talk about the Philadelphia Food Trust a lot. So why don't we get right into its history and a little bit about some of the farmers markets programs that go on. And Sandy, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thanks, Kelly. Um, we started in 1992, recognizing the need for more uh, fresh food, particularly in urban low-income areas. Um, so we started bringing fresh food from our small farms um, into the urban areas and inviting people to come. And what we found was that people were really very eager, despite common misperceptions, that they want to buy fresh food, but it's not available. So the history of the food trust really started with, how do you get food into low-income areas? Um, how can we help people learn to appreciate and better use food to be healthy? And then uh, we moved into working in a lot of other areas, in schools, and reaching youth from a lot of different perspectives. I, I know you told me that when the food trust started back in 1992, there were two people in one farmer's markets, and now there are 28 farmer's markets and a staff of 60 at the food trust. So it's a sign of the uh, willingness of communities to consider these issues now, where that wasn't the case so much before. I think the communities always knew that they wanted food, but they really didn't have an avenue um, to find it. People would complain about supermarkets not being there. They complain about supermarkets not being invested in the community or not having decent food. We would bring food fresh from the farm, and a farmer would pick the greens that morning and bring them in, and they would come and they go, now this is what a green should look like. And they were willing to buy it. The price was right. It was in their community, and uh, people were so pleased to be able to eat fresh food. And this is obviously a, a financially winning situation for the farmers, or I assume they wouldn't want to take part. Is that right? It takes a lot of work to make it financially winning. Um, farmers like direct marketing, but it's not so easy to find the right place and to maneuver through all the different regulations um, and to figure out how to get there and bring the people there. So we really do that service for the farmers. Um, we help to identify um, places where people want to come. We advertise. We clear through city ordinances, and we just make it a viable option, and then it is profitable. Farmers really need better places where they can get a decent price for their, their good food. One of the things I admire about the way you guys approach things is that you're, you, you want data and, and evaluation of what you do, mm -hmm. so you, you know what works. and. Things like that. And so that's a, that's a very good thing. And I know you team up with uh, researchers at Temple University, Gary Foster, who's recorded one of these webcasts just last week, by the way. Um, and that, uh, that to me is a real nice attribute. And here's the way I preface what I'm saying with that for the following reason. I think the premise of the farmer's markets is one of the reasons that people in poor areas don't eat well is they don't have access to healthy food at reasonable cost. 
and the, so then the hypothesis would be if you bring in access to foods, it'll help improve the situation. The critics of those kind of approaches say it's all supply and demand. If people really wanted healthy food, then they would demand the stores around them have it. And since they don't, it means that's just people are getting what they deserve, if you will, because they're getting what they want to buy. Now, you have data that suggests that's not true, that things really do change when the farmer's market right. comes in. I'd like to hear about that. We have data from farmer's markets. Um, we also have data from supermarkets showing that if you bring fresh food in, people do want to buy it. I, I really hate to hear people say, oh, people want to buy junk food, or, or they, they, they like chips and soda. And the truth is they learn to like it because that's all that's there. So our data have really shown that when you offer fresh food, people have increased their consumption by one to two servings of fruits and vegetables a day, which is a, a big plus for health and for controlling their weight. But there's no way to do it in a community without it. So it's really been a very simple equation. We do survey f um, customers at our markets every year. And year after year, we hear people are using fruits and vegetables as snacks. They're um, over 50% of the people who shop there say they have increased their consumption of fruits and vegetables. And three-quarters say by at least one to two servings a day. So we, we know that people want it. That's an impressive um, finding. And one of the uh, very interesting groups in this is what happens to children. So I'd like to come back in a minute and talk about the schools program that you're running and about food stores near schools. But let me first ask Tracy, one of the uh, innovative things that the Food Trust is doing has to do with getting supermarkets to come into to cities. Can you explain what the Food Trust has done on that front? Sure. Um, well, um, in the late 1990s, um, you know, as Sandy had mentioned, the Food Trust was involved with farmers markets work. Um, what we were noticing in our work was that um, it was great to bring in farmers markets into these communities and they needed this access to the fresh foods. But what we also noticed that um, was that on a year-round basis it was difficult to access this fresh food. So naturally we turned to the issue of supermarkets and through our work um, within communities across the city we realized that there was a se severe lack of supermarkets and there's in fact there was a shortage of supermarkets and at the time Philadelphia had the um, second lowest number of supermarkets um, as a, a per capita measure um, in terms of the major metropolitan areas across the country so this was pretty compelling information for us what we did was we looked into um, the need for more supermarkets in Philadelphia, conducting some research to document and understand um, where sales were occurring in the city. And also what we did was look at where uh, deaths were occurring due to um, diet-related causes. And what we found was there were uh, many areas of the city that were lacking adequate access to supermarkets. We also found that low-income residents were dis disproportionately affected by this um, shortage. And what we also found through our, our research was that um, low-income communities that were lacking access were also the same communities that happened to be experiencing these higher um, rates of diet-related disease. So all of this was, you know, very interesting to us, and we knew that we had to um, uh, release these findings and then engage in, in an advocacy campaign around the issue. So what we did was, long story short, was we, we engaged in this advocacy campaign. It ultimately um, resulted in city council hearings, statewide um, hearings at the Health and Human Services Committee level. Um, it was propelled to such a level that we, the state um, realized that this issue had to be addressed. Pennsylvania uh, in 2003 became the first state in the country to recognize that the lack of access to supermarkets and fresh food is a public health 
threat and that public resources needed to be committed to this issue. So the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing was created as a result of that. The program aims to increase supermarket um, development in underserved communities, urban and rural areas in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and, by, and this is not an initiative just in name, but there's money behind it, isn't there? Right. There is money behind this. And um, the state allocated $30 million to this program. This was leveraged um, with an additional $90 million to create ultimately a $120 million program. So really, it's the first program of its kind uh, in the country to be geared specifically around the supermarket issue and to be so comprehensive and clearly at the state level. And how does the money get used? The money is um, available to supermarket operators that want to locate in underserved communities. Um, it, the program by design is meant to be very flexible, so we can really support um, projects of all sizes uh, across the state of Pennsylvania. And in terms of eligible uses, you know, it can be, again, it, I think it pretty much addresses almost any aspect of the store development process that any, any operator would run into. Um, so from pre-development costs, we can help with those, to construction and um, costs, to actually acquiring the site and, and assembling land, to renovating existing stores, um, purchasing equipment, making upgrades, um, also to costs that are associated with um, workforce training or security in communities as well. Um, so it's a very, very flexible program. And I remember you saying um, that the, the challenge is to get the door open and open the market because after that it can sustain itself. Is that a correct characterization? Right. What we found in our work is that the supermarket industry is extremely competitive. Um, profit margins are between one to one and a half percent um, each year. So you can imagine what it takes to really survive in the industry. Um, what we've also learned um, through our work is that within the supermarket industry there are high startup costs and oftentimes a lot of these operators that want to locate in underserved communities don't have access to um, you know sources of capital um, that that traditional lenders might uh, make available so this program is one way to give them access to that capital okay any idea how the program is working it's been um, it's been doing very well and we've seen a dramatic um, impact in the communities um, to date the program is a little over three years old and we've helped to fund 32 projects all across the state of Pennsylvania in urban and, and um, rural areas um, these projects represent about 26 million dollars in terms of grants and loans committed and these programs uh, these projects have helped to create um, obviously to increase the availability of fresh food access, but we've also seen um, economic benefits. So jobs have been created, over 2,600 jobs from these, these funded projects, um, and a lot of uh, dollars in terms of private investment capital leveraged as a result of these um, projects in the communities. And are the markets themselves thriving? The markets are doing very well. I mean, that's very good news. This is a terrific example of public policy going right. You know, you, you've got, you had a need that you identified by doing a scan or survey of research of the community. You then launched into this advocacy operation. You got the city involved and the state involved. And it's very rare that somebody could have such an impact as you guys have. So congratulations for that. And it's really wonderful to hear that it really has become win-win. The members of the community win and they enjoy having access to the better foods. And it's a, a financially viable thing for the markets to do. So what a great example. I hope it gets replicated elsewhere. And that's is one area where you guys have really led the way. Another very interesting aspect of the work you're doing is um, regarding corner stores for kids going to and from school. Sandy, tell me a little bit about the, that initiative and what it's meant. Yeah, well, what we found is um, 
students in Philadelphia, and I think this is probably common in urban areas, are buying food on the way to and from school at small stores that sell mostly packaged foods. They're buying chips and soda and candy. An estimated uh, 600 calories a day, and at least on an average of $2 a day. So when we look at the obesity problem among youngsters, we think no matter what they do in school, no matter what they do at home, they're still putting themselves at risk just by what they buy. So we've been really working with kids and with store owners to change the food in stores, to get kids to choose to buy differently, and to have them develop um, the reasons and the campaign. Um, they've developed a urban-savvy uh, snack smart street soldier initiative, um, written comic books, developed storylines. They want to tell the story the way they want to tell it. They don't want to stop snacking. <laughs> they want to go to the stores. They want to enjoy it. It's part of their lives. And our effort is to partner with them to say, let's talk about how you can do it in a healthier way in partnership with the stores, with the schools, and with you as youngsters. Have stores been receptive to your request that they change with Well, themselves? the stores say that youngsters are very good customers of theirs. <laughs> so if it's good for the youngsters, it has to be good for them. They are a little wary that we might tell the kids not to shop there. We promise them we are not interested in telling the kids not to shop there. We just want to have them switch what they buy. And so that's the only way really we could really do it. Um, and the more the youngsters want different foods, the more I think the store owners are willing to try different things and provide it. Well, the common lore is that the highest profit margins exist in the foods that you'd like to see people eating less of. So the, the soft drinks, the packaged snack foods and things like that. So if a store owner switches over and sells things to kids, albeit they're still selling to the children, right. but they're lower in profit margin, does that affect yeah, the store adversely? Yeah. Uh, we've looked at, um, and we did this in schools years ago, that if students started purchasing healthier foods, they'd have to probably increase by 40 or 50 percent the amount of purchases they made to be able to keep the same profits. So That's a big change. There's really a, there's really a difficult issue there. I mean, our intent is to not switch everything so much. It's really an early in the infancy in tracking what they're buying, what the profit margins are, and what the changes are. We have to make it work. Yeah. I mean, isn't that interesting that the um, spending money on the way to and from school is part of that, the social fabric in those neighborhoods? Yeah, I, I've actually been amazed. We, did a, we had students uh, years ago put on a, develop a little uh, drama story around it. Um, with a mother in curlers at her ironing board, <laughs> as, as I doubt many of the mothers were in any of our homes these days. You know, with the mother saying, now, here's $2, go buy something healthy. And, you know, the kids would drop off with the $2 and buy whatever they buy. But I think it, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I think it's a very much of an urban phenomenon. Kids walk to school. Corner stores, um, because of supermarkets leaving the communities, are everywhere. They're just a big temptation. They sell, you know, hoagies and chips and candy. Um, kids tell me that decades ago, they stopped at corner stores with penny candy, but they didn't have as much money. So something has clearly changed. Do they get adversely affected, the stores I'm talking about, by supermarkets coming in? I don't think so, but Tracy, what do you think? I would say probably not. I think that they're probably offering different things. Um, and we're actually 
doing um, a, a long-term study right now to look at some of the economic impacts. So hopefully in, in about a year or two we'll have some more data around the retail economy. Um, this is a, a study that actually is being um, that the Food Trust is a, a partner with, but the lead uh, on the study is uh, Penn State University. Dr. Stephen Matthews is leading that study. It's an NIH-funded study, um, and what we're doing is evaluating um, how neighborhoods change in terms of fruit and vegetable consumption, as well as different measures of psychological health and the retail economy um, in you know in a community that before and after a supermarket comes in. So um, we've done the baseline study, um, and then within about another year or two, hopefully, once the supermarket is in place, we'll get some more results. You know, Tracy, since we're talking about the supermarkets, I meant to ask you earlier about something that you had observed, and that's how supermarkets coming in have a number of spill spillover effects into the community, positive things that happen around it. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. Well, what we've seen is that you know, supermarket access is clearly um, a public health issue. Uh, no one can deny that, I think. But what we've also found is there are a lot of economic um, benefits to having supermarkets in communities. So supermarkets can come into communities and help with physical revitalization efforts, downtown revi revitalization efforts. Um, supermarkets are oftentimes anchors to larger corridors because they are, you know, everyone needs access to food. They can be a big draw. And so they can bring in the foot traffic um, to an area and bring in complementary businesses. Um, the development of a, a supermarket clearly provides jobs for the community. What we've actually found, um, a partner organization of ours, the, the Reinvestment Fund, um, what we actually found was that um, supermarkets there's a multiplier effect with, with supermarket development, construction, and operation. So for every dollar invested in a supermarket, um, that generates $1.5 in return. Um, we've also found um, through some research of ours that when a supermarket comes into a community, it immediately boosts property values between 4 to 7 percent. So that's clearly stating that there was a lack of something in the community, and clearly um, the community wants this. Um, so in addition to the economic benefits that I just discussed, I mean, there are other benefits that are less quantifiable but nonetheless really important, and, and one of those is um, coming in and to these areas can also make the community safer. So supermarkets can provide that foot traffic and provide kind of a, a social place that, um, that will hopefully make a community safer. You know, I'd like to end by asking each of you about what you would tell other communities if they came to you and said, we'd like to do something. And it's kind of a broad question and something you could write a book about, each of you, I'm sure. Um, so let me give you a minute to think about that, and I'll tell the people listening that if they'd like to hear other Rudd Center webcasts, they can go to our website at www.yalerudcenter.org. So let's end with that question. Let's say I'm a community advocacy person in some city, and I come to you and I say, where do we start? You know, you've accomplished so much because you've taken these ideas and really put them into practice, which is very impressive. So what are some of the lessons that you think are most important that you could pass on to other people? Let's start with you, Sandy. When I started this work, I think the most important thing I did was ask people what they wanted in their communities, ask the kids what they wanted in their schools, and I just really followed what they said. You know, when, I asked, when we asked students what they wanted to buy in school, they wanted to buy fruit salad. They wanted to buy the fruit salad that they saw on the street in the little plastic hinge containers, you know. I said, we can do that. You know, when the parents said there's nowhere to buy fresh food where people treat us respectfully, I said, we can do that. So I feel like 
the most basic thing is if people want it, you can gather around. There are models, ours, our programs, and others, and people can learn how to do it. But I think they have to identify the need first. People have become accustomed to accepting it the way it is. So there's a lot of wisdom that resides in these neighborhoods and mm. communities. If you take the time to listen, you can learn a lot. I think like. so. That's really good. So Tracy, what would you say? Um, I think that, you know, in terms of the supermarket work, what we've actually seen is that documenting the problem, that there is a need and that there are um, outcomes that are impacted as a result of, you know, whatever the problem is. I think that that's really important, especially from a policy perspective. If you want policy change, um, you need to get the attention of policymakers. And one way to do that is to quantify a problem and to demonstrate how widely it, it persists and how it impacts different groups. Um, so, so being able to do that, I think, is really, really um, laying a foundation for any advocacy process. Well, in, in closing, I wish I wore a hat today because if I did, I would take it off and tip it to you guys <laughs> because you do such wonderful work. Um, and as I said, it's, you know, there are a lot of people have ideas. There are a lot of people who are out there doing advocacy. But to really make an impact as you guys have is really quite unique. And so I'm very happy that we got to learn about it and to pass it along to people through this webcast. So congratulations and thank you very much. Thank you. For those of you listening, um, you're more than welcome to come to the Rudd Center website, which is at www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll find a list of a number of resources related to nutrition, public health, and public policy, including outstanding webcasts like the one that you heard today. Thank you very much.